Help us to receive it not only in our minds as a checklist of information, but to perceive it in our hearts and in our feet so that we can live it out, that its transforming power can go deeply to the core of our condition and make us more into your likeness. Father, I just ask you to guide and direct everything that's said and done in this service, that your power is present for us to serve you and be like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week we talked a little bit about why it's so foundational for us to know the Word of God, for us to know the story, to know who we are, to know who God is, to know where we're going, to know our purpose, to find our identity in the Word of God because there are so many competing voices that are going to guide us and direct us and frankly lie to us. We have to stand firmly on the story of God. We are part of that story. And a community dies when it no longer knows how to tell that story or live that story anymore. And we've already seen many Christians, many churches, many traditions turn away from their story. And this is not going to be a place where we do that. This is a place where we find ourselves in that story and we live out the chapters yet to be written. So we talked about the purpose of the book of Titus last time. And that was that uh, there were some problems in Crete. Crete is an island, one of the Greek islands. There were self-serving leaders. There were false teachers. There was immoral behavior among the churches. There was a bad witness. And Paul was writing a letter to one of his faithful friends who'd walked with him in ministry. He was encouraging him and building him up and showing him how to carry on the work. He was passing his baton on to a man who was ready to lead. And he was in some ways called Paul's hitman or Paul's Navy SEAL, spiritual Navy SEAL, because there was work to be done and it required a soldier of God standing up and receiving orders because there were problems in Crete. Now there are two main twin themes in the book of Titus. And the first one is sound doctrine. It's important to know our story it's important to know what God wants us to do, to understand the truth of his character. It's, under, it's, impo it's impossible to know what to do if we don't know what to believe, as Pastor Chris shared earlier. And the second thing, which Pastor Chris also shared, was to be zealous for good works. It is the foundation of the doctrine which leads us as we step out into the world, our behavior, the way we speak, the way we love, the way we work, Everything that we do should be guided by this doctrine, and it should be good. It should reflect God's goodness. Many people have called this an apostolic manual for church planting, to create a healthy environment for the gospel to grow in the lives of the congregation so that it spills out into the community. Now, this was a church plant at one time. 23 years ago, our pastor and his wife came to Tulsa, Tulsa area, right, to build yet another church. People say, what, what do they need another church for in that area? But God directed them here to begin a body, a community of faith, a family of followers of Jesus. And this body has been faithful for 23 years, and our leaders have been faithful for 23 years, and we've never strayed from sound doctrine. But in some ways, there is a new season that we're experiencing. We wouldn't call this a church planting, but Perhaps it's a transplanting. 
We're being taken out of the garden, which is no longer healthy for us, and being planted in new soil. And so while this is not, amen, amen, that's right. This is a wonderful time to take stock, to look at ourselves. Where are we? Where have we come from? And where do we need to go? And most importantly, who do we need to be to go there in obedience? And so we're transplanting ourselves into a new soil. And we want our church to grow and be healthy and fruitful and thriving. We often have a wedding, and then some years later, people renew their vows. And I feel like in some sense, we're in a season of renewing our vows and our commitment to God, to the truth, to one another, and to the world that is lost, that we're called to be part of God's mission to seek and save the lost. And so last week, we unfolded four whole verses in the book of Titus. It was basically Paul's greeting, but he laid out some deep theological truths about our identity. We can do nothing unless we know who we are. And Paul said many deep, wonderful things about our identity. We are servants of God. We are sent by God. We are chosen by God. We can be righteous in God by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we are secure in his promises. Our hope is not based on wishful thinking. It's based on the eternal and unshakable and unmovable promise of God who has never, ever failed us. We are empowered in this season to do the work of the Holy Spirit, to be missional people. Each of us was born for such a time of this, as, a, as this. You know that you were placed here for this time, in this family, in this community, However many years you live, God has given you gifts to use to glorify him, but most importantly, to spread the kingdom of God, to take territory for the kingdom of God. We are in God's family. Whatever DNA you have, whatever your family tree is, whatever family curses there may be, they were cut off at Calvary. And you are brothers and sisters in a new family, and it's an eternal family. We witness one faith. We speak one truth, and there is no compromise. And through the journey, we are receivers of God's grace, God's mercy, and God's peace. Hallelujah. That's who we are. And it's in that identity that it's time for the talk. Now, I like this picture because that's, in a sense, the kind of a talk we have. When Andy sat down with Opie after some misdeed of Opie's, Opie knew a few things about himself. He knew he was a son. He knew he was loved. He knew he was cared for. He would never be rejected. But he also knew that his dad had some words of correction or realignment or recalibration. Whatever you want to say, we can receive God's correction, God's revealing, God's convicting when we know who we are. So in this moment, as we sit and look at the high bar for Christian living, let's remember who we are as his children. And if you need to hear the voice of Andy Taylor as I'm speaking, go ahead. If there's another voice that gives you comfort and peace and you feel like it's a safe voice, even if it's hard truths, go ahead. So let's settle into the couch open our ears and open our hearts to truth that may be um, bracing, it may be convicting, 
but it's said with a goal of change and transformation and wrapped in love. It's a gift. So I, today we're going to be talking about Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. I'm going to read this before we move on to theme number 1. We've got five whole verses today. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now we'll be breaking down each part of these verses bit by bit. But the first theme that we see here is holiness. And I want to make it very clear that the Christian gospel is not primarily about having my sins forgiven and then just spending a blissful eternity with God, somehow making it through this life relatively unscathed with my faith intact. Unless Christians are truly transformed into the character of God, the whole purpose of the church's existence becomes blurred and confused. We receive salvation, we receive grace, we receive mercy, we are forgiven to be different, to be changed. God's plan was to create a new community, a new people. And that means we live as a new community and as a new people. So what is holiness? Holiness is a behavior. It's something you can observe. Jesus said it's by the fruit that you will know the tree. And the fruit are the works that we do in the world. Our holiness is determined by the character of God. When we act in a way that looks like Jesus, we are acting in holiness. It's a way of behaving that we are all expected to perform. Now again, don't mishear me. We don't win salvation by performance. We can never be good enough. Are we clear in that? But so many people have used this as an excuse to say, well, what are my works for anyway? I'm saved, sanctified, Holy Ghost filled, water baptized, Jesus on my mind. I got a new life, but my new life looks like my old one. And it looks like the world's life. And that brings us to the next part. It should be markedly different from the life of unbelievers. Markedly different, not marginally different, not possibly different, not sometimes different. Our lives should demand an explanation. People should watch us and marvel and wonder, you've got to tell me what you found, what was in the water you drank. Because I'm, in, I'm encountering something holy and eternal and divine, and I know it isn't you, so what is it? Tell me. I want to drink from that well. We can argue, we can debate, we can tell people what's right and wrong, but unless our life reflects true, deep, profound, and overflowing transformation, then our witness is just hypocrisy, and nobody wants what we're quote-unquote selling. The biblical witness tells us we have to turn from sin. In 1 John, 
It says, those who've been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. In 1 John 3, he says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. What I mean by keeps on sinning is a continual, habitual pattern of sin without any correction or any change. We know that we all sin. John himself said, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. But confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you. Let's understand that we are going to battle the flesh and we are going to fail and there will be cracks in our pottery and chinks in our armor. But there should be a change. Those bondages should fall off. Those addictions should fall off. Those old desires should slip away and we should become like him. It says, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. But it's not just about not sinning. It's not just about what we don't do. We've got to do some things, right? We've got to be something different, something not just passive, but something uh, intentional. John Wesley believed that there were two kinds of acts that we should be doing. One were acts of piety and one were acts of mercy. Acts of piety were going to church, studying the Bible, praying, fasting, taking communion. He said, those are essential. you got to do them. But I want you to do many, many more acts of mercy. I want you to get out there as bearers of God's grace. You are a bearer of God's provenient grace to the world. We talk about God's provenient grace where he reaches every man. He does it in you and me. When we visit the sick, we reach out to the poor. When we uphold those that are broken, when we care about the marginalized and the lost, we're supposed to walk out with what we've filled up in here. This is the huddle. That's the game. And we're called to that. James says this very clearly. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and, clothes and daily food and someone says, go in peace, keep warm, be fed. But we don't do anything. We don't meet that need in a material way. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, I have faith you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith with deeds. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. We are called to be a holy people. And Paul's exhortations are going to begin at the top. He's going to begin with leaders. Now, I want to be clear as I'm talking about this. Everything he says about leaders, he's saying about everybody. This is what we all ought to be. So I don't want everybody just looking at Pastor Chris or Jeff or some leader and be going, okay, let's see you do that. <laughs> I want us to realize that all of us are called to the same road, but leaders are held in a special position to manifest these in a degree worth imitation. We need to look like Jesus before we can lead others to look like Jesus. It's only a healthy sheep. It's going to have babies. I heard someone quote that. If a leader is healthy, then the flock will grow. But if the leader is not healthy, then there are dire consequences. So what should a leader be? He should be a model of integrity, maturity, and competent in theology. You notice being competent in theology wasn't the first thing that was mentioned. It's about how we live our day-to-day -day life 
in the context that God has given us, outside of the church, outside of the pulpit, are we men and women of integrity? Are we men and women of maturity? A pastor is to provide and protect, feed and lead, teach and tend to the spiritual needs of the flock. But they also have to equip the laity to do the work of the ministry because I'll tell you, if a pastor tries to be all things to all people at all times, you'll find them on the edge of the road, gasping for air, needing a, what do they call it, defibrillator to get them going again. The same thing happened when Moses was leading the people and he was burdened with everybody's problems all the time and his father-in-law said, look, you got to have other people share this job. You can't do it. And there are gifts in this congregation that can step in to some of those areas. We saw the same thing in the book of Acts where there were issues with the widows from Greece. And they were like, look, you guys can't be waiting on tables when you're dealing with the word of God, so we've got to appoint people to do that. I want us to understand that there is a role to play that we share as a body. The leader is an example and a role model, but they can't do it all. We shouldn't expect them to do it all, and we're going to kill them if we expect them to do it all. We also find our job description laid out in Scripture. Contrary to what some leadership experts say, we are shepherds. We are not ranchers, managers, or corporate heads out to raise money, build buildings, draw crowds, and measure up to the world's criteria of success. A rancher is driving the cattle. And there are churches where pastors feel they've got to drive you in the direction that they want to go. We have this corporate mentality of a church where success is based on big, better, and excuse me, butts in the seats and money in the coffer and your platform on YouTube and how many praise songs from your worship team are out there selling CDs or downloads. And none of that is what the kingdom of God is about. God will bless us when we are faithful, when we walk in integrity, when we look like Jesus. That's all he's ever asked us to do. But when we're focused on the world's standard of success, then suddenly we're in competition with other churches. Oh, what are you going there for? Come to our church. And what happens is we've got a bunch of people just sheep stealing. 90% of new memberships in evangelical churches are just people that are coming from another church. We're having no impact in the world because we're not living like we're called to live. And the world sees it. If our goal is to build a kingdom or a business, don't, don't tell me that people don't know they're just being used as a consumer. They're just another person to sell a product to. And believe me, the younger generations aren't buying it. They don't want it. The minute they feel like you have an agenda you want them to follow, you're going to lose them because they've had enough of that already. And so have I, and I hope you have too. So, Paul starts by this very easy thing. <laughs> Wants us to be blameless. So, verses 5 and 6. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. As I directed you, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to charge of being wild and disobedient. Titus has a tough job to do because part of appointing elders in every town means booting out some elders that weren't doing their job. And so Paul wants Titus to know exactly what his expectations are for a person who's qualified to lead. The first thing is faithfulness to the church. 
there are two reasons why Paul left Titus in Crete. One was to set right that was which, which was left undone. We finished the work. We're faithful to the church. The churches in Crete were in trouble, and they needed to be given health and an injection of the Holy Spirit. And he was there to appoint leaders in every town. And a leader is someone who measures up to God's standards because the health of the church demands qualified leadership. In the Bible, we will see words like elder or overseer or pastor. They're all the same. They're interchangeable. There aren't three different uh, types of leader in this sense. There are only one. I will tell you that the personal integrity of the leader is vitally, vitally important. I'm going to skip to... For many, many years, I used to love to listen to Ravi Zacharias. How many of you know Ravi? I would wait for Sunday night to hear his teaching, and it was impeccable, and it was inspiring, and it was biblical, and the message, I couldn't find a chink in it. But there was a problem with the messenger, and we found out after his death that he was accused of and very likely was a sexual predator, unfaithful to his wife, using and abusing people for his own gratification. And now I can't even listen to the man. Every word he said was right. The message was good. But when the message and the messenger don't line up, I lose respect for that man and I can't hear the message because the messenger himself is no longer worthy to share it. We see pastor after pastor being removed from their position because of poor choices. We have to understand that the leadership in the church is the engine that drives the train. It's the point of the arrow. It sends the direction. And if there's a problem at the head, it's going to affect the people. There are consequences to others. Our sin is never just about us. Our failures are never just about us. There's a ripple effect that is frankly eternal. It has eternal consequences. When David disobeyed God and took a census of the people, a plague killed thousands. When the kings of Israel started to worship idols, they led their people into worship and they ended up in exile. We cannot separate the man from the message or the woman who's a leader from the message. We have to conform to it because the world is watching. And if what I say is not manifest in my life, then where's the power? Where's the truth in it? If I tell you you can be free, if I tell you you can be holy, if I can tell you you can be forgiven, if I tell you you can love and I don't do it, then people watching are going to say, your gospel is worthless, there's no power, it's snake oil. We have to be men and women who are transformed by what the word says, not just wonderful communicators of it. So we have to be faithful to others. He tells us to be blameless. That means to be beyond reproach. And that's a slide that has somebody follow me as I follow Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, follow me as I follow Christ. Which means that I need to be a life worth emulating, worth copying. What I do should be representative of what I want you to do. And what I'm doing should be what Christ wants me to do. To be above reproach means to have personal character and integrity. And we see a wonderful example of this from the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, as you remember, Daniel had been raised to a pretty high position under the king. And he was given a lot of responsibility. And the Persian leaders, the satraps, they didn't like it. 
They didn't like Daniel, and they wanted to take him down. So they plotted to get him in trouble. And the first thing they did was they tried to find a chink in his armor. They tried to find an area of compromise. Let's read the story. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Satraps didn't like that. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with his law of God. That's what I want my life to be. I want people to be able to look at my finances. I want them to look at my internet history. I want them to look at my phone. I want them to know what I'm watching, who I'm talking to, where I'm going, and be able to say, it's beyond reproach. Now, I will admit, I probably watched too many parrot videos. <laughs> and when I was in Mexico, I couldn't, find any, I couldn't find much English TV, so I ended up watching like a marathon of Laverne and Shirley. And then I had a dream that Lenny and Squiggy were in my small group. That was a really weird dream. <laughs> but the point that I'm making is that I, I, I want to be the kind of leader, and let me tell you, I'm not there, where if there were a bug sitting on my shoulder, and I don't mean a buzzy bug, but like a recording bug, that every word I made, everywhere I went, everything I did, I could open that up to you, and I wouldn't be ashamed, that I would be able to say, I've done my best, I've gone where I needed to go, I've been... Christ in the world as much as possible. That's the standard that we're called to. So let's talk about the first thing we're supposed to be. And I kind of get off the hook on this one, at least now. God may give me a godly wife in the future. Pray for that. But at the moment, I don't have a wife to be faithful to. And for women in leadership, faithfulness to a husband. John MacArthur said, an elder must have an unsullied lifelong reputation for devotion to his spouse and sexual purity. It's not just sexual purity. We're talking about faithfulness. Marriage is a picture of God's relationship to the church, Christ in the church. It goes deeper than simply not having affairs. It includes any form of sexual immorality, which could be pornography, it could be unwholesome chatting, it could be overly familiar relationships, it could be wandering eyes. Those things have to be covenanted to God. But it goes before, beyond that. God established marriage in the garden to be a beautiful complementary picture of the fullness of the image of God that he placed in both men and women. And the Bible gives us clear direction on what a marriage should look like. And first of all, it's about mutual submission. You know, women sometimes, or men, both, will say, well, women, you ought to submit. Well, let's be, let's be real here. We are told to submit to one another. Men, you got some submitting to do too. It's not just the woman that submits. But what does God say about a godly husband and a godly wife? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water of the word. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as you do to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. What I want to say here is that we, in our roles at home, those are the testing grounds. That's the boot camp for leadership 
out of the home. That's where we learn how to deny ourselves. That's where we learn how to be Christ for somebody. We protect their hearts. We nurture. We protect. We listen. We give grace. We forgive. That's where it's done. And if it can be done there, then it can be done out here. And it may feel hot. It may feel like you're in the furnace. It may be a crucible. But remember that there was a fourth man in the fire in Daniel's day. And Jesus is in the fire with you even when your marriage seems impossible. And it seems like it's gone on so long and there's nothing you can do. Yes, there is. We recommit and we rely on the one who can make it happen. The same thing is true with our children. It says that children should be faithful as well. This speaks to the importance of family leadership. In 1 Timothy, it says, If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church? In Deuteronomy 6, it says, These commandments I give you today, and they're to be on your heart, and impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Children should not be church orphans. I met a woman when I was in Senegal, and she had a difficult time with the church because her father was a pastor, and he was there for everybody else but her. She felt like an orphan. My daddy loves everybody but me. My daddy has time for everybody but me. And that's why we have what we call preacher's kid syndrome. How many of you know a preacher's kid that went right off the rails because the church became an idol to daddy or mommy? Now, I'm not saying that if you have a rebellious kid that you should be kicked out of the pulpit. But you may need to take a little time to maybe refocus, reshift, to nurture those lives. That's your first mission field. Let's not forget, who would say God is the perfect parent? What happened to his two first kids? Let's not be harsh on parents who are doing everything they can and their children, as autonomous, choice-making people, choose wrong. But that father or mother in leadership needs to invest as much or more time in their marriage and their family before they can be sanctified enough to be able to lead a church. So, tells us to be blameless. Says, this is the second time we're told to be blameless. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Being blameless is repeated because it is foundational, it's essential, it's not optional. It relates to life in the church and outside of the church, to our communities, our neighborhoods. Wherever we go, we need to be blameless. Even when I'm on the phone with customer service who has hung up on me four times. And if you want to hear the story on that, talk to Marie, because she was there as I was trying to deal with the electric company. What does it mean to be overbearing? Overbearing is just being arrogant. I'm going to bear my personality over you. I am important. What I say and do is more important than you. It's self-centered. It's self-interested. It looks at the ministry as a personal possession and as a monument to self. And it is so sad how many pastors have begun with good intentions and holy living, and they have devolved into protecting some kind of idol to their own success. We cannot focus our 
attention and our ministry is it's not about me. The more you don't see me and you see Jesus, we're in the right place. We want to lift him up. We want to become less. It's just like John said, John the Baptist, when he said, he must become greater, I must be less. The minute we start to think this is my church and my mission and my agenda and my glory and my legacy, we're doomed and so is our church and so is our witness. It's not about me and my plans. It's about obedience to God's direction. Anger, that's what hot-tempered is. We don't want pastors or leaders to be short-fused. Anger can, be, can hurt people, and it's also a sign of immaturity. You know, we can use anger to manipulate people. We can use anger to control people. Oh, I don't want to make you mad, so I'm going to just listen and yes, sir, no, sir. And pastors can do that to their congregations. I had a friend, Pam, was called by the pastor saying, I want you to teach some course or some study. And she said, well, I'll pray about it. And he's like, what's there to pray about? I just told you what you're going to do. Anger shows a lack of self-control. Anger shows weakness and not strength. Anger does not reveal love. It really reveals a baby showing a temper tantrum. And if we cannot allow the Holy Spirit to heal those things that make us angry, we're in trouble because ultimately anger is generally connected to selfishness. I didn't get my way, and you're not doing what I want you to do, so I'm going to blow up as a means of control. We need to be self-controlled. It specifically mentions addiction to wine or a drunkard, but any addiction, anything that takes you away, anything that's controlling you, anything that you have that is making you lose your life and your purpose because you, you're focused in whether it be gambling or shopping or workaholism or people helping or people pleasing, you name it, we've all got something that is tempting to become an addiction for us. It mentions not being a bully. This is connected to anger. We're not going to be a fist fighter. We're not going to be brawlers. Certainly not physically abusive. Certainly not hurtful. As a leader, I never want anything to come out of my mouth to any one of you ever that is going to hurt you, demean you, humiliate you, make you less than you are. If I ever do, call me on it, and I will repent because there's no excuse for it ever. There's not. It's the last thing we want to do as a witness when we say that we follow Jesus who is all about love and all about welcome and words come out of our mouth that crush the spirit of others. We're here to build up the church and not to beat it down. And we're certainly not in it for the money. But some people are. I was Googling the richest pastors in the country and some of them are worth half a billion dollars. I'm not going to say much about that, but I don't understand it. Yes, a workman is worthy of his hire. Yes, pastors and leaders have to be able to have a home and take care of their family. But when the point of ministry is to fill the coffers, fill my pockets, buy a new car, dress my wife in beautiful Christian Dior or whatever, there's a problem. And the world sees it as a problem. And yes, I believe God wants to prosper us. But you know where we need to be prospered? In our inner man, in our outer witness, not in surrounding ourselves with luxury, ease, and comfort. Where is 
deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me in this prosperity gospel that exalts kingdoms that do not honor God. A leader needs to be hospitable. Hospitable just means we welcome the stranger. I welcome you into my heart. When I see you, when you come to visit me, when you call me, when I interact with you, I want you to know you're not an intrusion. You're not an interruption. You're somebody that is valuable not only to God but to me, and I have the time for you. There are so many times, especially on Sunday morning, when I'm going for my Bible study to then get ready for worship, and I've got a billion things to do, and some of you lovely, precious people want to stop and talk to me about something, and I try my very best to give you all of my attention in that moment. But there are times when pastors and leaders have to say, you know, you're important to me, and because you're important to me, I don't want to rush this time with you. Can I get back to you? Can we schedule another time to talk? When I'm sitting in my office working on a Bible study, I'm just trying to get it done, and a precious soul walks in and just plops down and wants to chat, my flesh sometimes says, uh, could he have called first? But the Holy Spirit says, no, this is a divine appointment most of the time. Sometimes I may have to say, I can't meet with you right now. You should not expect your pastors to drop everything all the time and just give you every bit of their heart all the time. There's a balance here. But too many pastors walk around with bodyguards and closed doors and green rooms before they speak. And as soon as they're done, they're whisked off because they can't talk to anybody. That's not how Jesus was. Jesus talked about heaven as a banquet where we come and prepare a table and we fellowship around a table and we nurture and feed one another. I want you to see that in my face and in all the faces of the people that I've set a table for you. Let's dine together on the goodness of God. You're not an imposition. You're not an intrusion. And you matter. But you may have to matter tomorrow at 10. <laughs> we have to keep the balance. It says that a pastor should love what is good. And that's simply seeking the virtues which is prudence and justice and temperance and fortitude and courage and faith and hope and charity. I don't want to be around a pastor that is doom and gloom and irritated and angry about everything all the time. What God are you trusting if all you're talking about is the problems? Let's talk about the problem solver. It's not our job to make the world perfect. God will take care of that. It's our focus to keep our eyes on him. And what our eyes are on are the good and the virtuous. And believe me, it saves a lot of money on Tom's when we can do that. <laughs> we must be sensible. We must be self-controlled. All of this comes down to the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? It says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and generous a gentleness, and self-control. And you know what? Self-control is kind of a misnomer. It's let the Holy Spirit guide that control. We live by the Spirit, and we deny the works of the flesh. I can't control me, but God in me can help me be what he wants me to be and balanced. We need to be righteous. We need to be holy. We've talked about holiness, what it is. Leaders must be that. And finally, we have to have a reverence for the Word. 
Now you notice all the things we've talked about before we got to the doctrine. All the faithfulness and integrity has to be there first. And then we have the authority. And then we have the right to share the truth in a way that can be believed and received. And we do that. We do that. Let's keep doing that. Let's stick to the word. Let's stick to the foundation. Let's stick to the scriptures. And let's not compromise. We talked about that last week. And we're also charged. If there's false doctrine out there, let's get it right. We're not supposed to just say, well, if you believe that, that's fine. Whatever's fine. No. We have to speak the truth in love. That's our responsibility. But it's a very tall order. (laughs) I'm sorry, people. You know, in James it says, you guys really shouldn't want to be teachers. Don't don't grasp for that because you're going to be judged more harshly. And not only that, you're going to be under a lot more attack than you've ever been in your life. Spiritual attack, attack from the world. When you're leading all the time, who is there to hold up your hands? Just like in, in, in the Old Testament, when Moses was overseeing the battle, when his hands went down, the army started to lose. But when Aaron and Hur lifted up his hands, they started to win. And in this congregation today, I see people that are ready to lift hands up. And that can be through prayer. That can be through a word of encouragement. That can be giving a scripture. That can be a phone call or a text. That, guys, we don't have it all together all the time. We need you as the body to stand with us, encourage us, exhort us, maybe even rebuke us. We need you. We can't do it by ourselves. And so as a result, this is an opportunity for us to pray for one another. So we're going to take a little bit of time to intercede for our leadership today. And I want to talk a little bit about it. First of all, as I've been preaching today, I can tell you, as I was preparing and as I've been preaching, the Lord has shown me i got some chinks in my armor. I have some areas that I'm vulnerable, that I'm not conformed to Christ. I don't know about my fellow leaders. There may be some areas like that too. We're going to have a time where the leaders are going to come forward at the kneelers, or just standing in front of the altar. And we're going to try to ask the God, search my heart. Show me if there's any wickedness in me. Show me if there's anything broken in me that you want to repair. But I want to give you another image. This was so awesome at our staff meeting. Becky Chip's wife was praying, and she was talking about, God, fill the broken places. Fill the broken places. And I started to think about this Japanese art form called kintsugi where they take broken pottery and they reassemble it with gold as the adhesive. And they create something even more beautiful. And before I eat, I said, you know what this reminded me of? I said, there's this Japanese, and suddenly both Terry and Becky said, yeah, I had the same image at the same moment, the same pottery, with the same gold. So what I'm asking for while the leadership is up here praying is that the congregation will do two things. Number one, if you will pray that God will fill those broken pieces, that he will create a new, a beautiful masterpiece, a piece of art that he has crafted and is new and better than before. I'd also like you to be sensitive during this time because after this time of self-reflection and self-consecration, I'm going to ask for you to come and pray for us as leaders. If you have, while you're praying for us, if God gives you a word, if God gives you a scripture, 
if God gives you some form of encouragement, I want to invite you to come and meet us and share that with us so that we all leave here ready for the new day that God's calling us for. So I'd like to invite the leadership to come up, and we can find a place either at the front or 